Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there, folks. Oliver here this week. I have a very fun interview with Mark Fronmeyer, the CEO of Arkimoto, talking about the other end of the micromobility classification. This is a 1,100 pound, more or less, three-wheeled electric fun utility vehicle that's just gone into production in Oregon. These are low-cost vehicles that meet the, a lot of the definitions that Horace and I have been talking about with the disruption. It's underserving for a car, but at the same time meets the needs of specific customers at a lower cost than all the other alternatives, while also just being totally badass. I'm really excited to have a chance to try one out at some point. It's a great discussion about the challenges and opportunities of bringing this sort of vehicle to market. But before I do that, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Particle. As you're most likely to know, all these shared scooters, bikes, and other micromobility vehicles are connected to the internet. And when that isn't configured correctly and operators lose contact with their fleet, it can get expensive quickly. If you don't know where your $700 scooter is, you are in trouble. And as I've learned more about this industry, I've come to really appreciate just how much complexity there is to make that work well. And that's where Particle comes in. It provides an end-to-end IoT platform from device management and connectivity to hardware uh, for connecting all of these scooters and bikes up to make them actually work. For operators tracking a fleet's health to addressing on-demand regulation per city is very complicated. And then keeping them all continually complying gets substantially worse at scale. Particle's IoT platform enables customization, fleet management tools, and reliable connectivity to support your growth and differentiation in the market as an operator. From those operators that I've talked to, Particle has been a godsend and helped streamline the hard bits and help them focus actually on running their business. If you're interested, check out particle.io forward slash micromobility to learn more and request a free IoT development kit. All podcast listeners will also receive a free consultation. Visit particle.io forward slash micromobility today. Thanks so much to Particle for sponsoring the episode. And here's our interview with Mark. And we're back. We have with us Mark Fronmeyer from Arkimoto. I am incredibly excited to do this interview. How are you today, Mark? Oliver, I'm doing well. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Not at all. I I have been following you guys since probably 2014, I would say, 2013, 2014, when I first saw the fun utility vehicle being kind of publicly announced. And I am incredibly excited because you guys have just gone into production. We have. We we actually, we launched production five weeks ago today. So we're we're just just at the very beginning of that process of getting vehicles out the door into the hands of customers and and ramping up. Yeah, awesome. You're not in production hell? I would say it's more, you know, like production purgatory, trending towards hell. It's all the things that you would expect out of an early production operation, managing quality issues, managing suppliers, dealing with all of the things that inevitably pop up as soon as you start getting multiples. And now we have, I think... We have delivered, I want to say 12, and have maybe 20 vehicles in total that are either built or in the process of build at the moment. Turning that into a well-oiled machine that is is cranking out the same exact thing every time, it's a process. It's, so it's uh, it's the fun part of the, of the problem, which is actually yep. getting vehicles into the hands of our real early customers, but it's definitely a lot of work. 
Yeah, totally. Well, I commend you guys. I mean, uh, making cars is hard and making vehicles is hard. And I think oftentimes underestimated, especially by the tech crowd, uh, when you actually have oh, to go and yeah. do it. And yeah, yeah. So the story of my life, I mean, I was I was a software entrepreneur way back in a previous life. And it is just so fantastically much harder to build a vehicle product on the road than it is to do software. It's a different world. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. You started out, as you say, in software. Can you talk me, talk me through the origin story of, of Akimoto and how you went from being sort of doing software into, uh, into building fun utility vehicles? Sure. I had uh, just sold a video game company. So this is 2007. And that was my first uh, venture that I ever participated in as a founder. I, I was at that time a bicycle commuter and was, went looking for a product to buy. I wanted to buy an electric vehicle. I wanted to buy something that was, you know, a slightly more sedentary way of getting around town, something that would protect from the elements. I'm in Eugene, Oregon. It rains a lot here. And something that would be much, much more efficient than cars on the road. So I didn't want an electric car. I wanted something that was going to be right-sized in terms of footprint. And I think that really speaks to the idea of micromobility was I, I wanted something that was going to be human scale because the way that we use cars is crazy. We, buy, we drive these multi-ton machines, typically by ourselves or with just one other person, carrying a relatively small amount of stuff on average about 31 miles a day, at least in the United States. To me, that use pattern was, was really sort of perfect for the electric drive, particularly when you consider that batteries have just much lower energy density than gasoline, the less stuff that you're pushing down the road, the farther you can go and the less embodied energy it has and the less material, you know, the less materials, less extraction and so on. And also, you know, we dedicate 40% or so of our urban landscape to asphalt to move and store cars. And yet we still have massive congestion. And so I wanted something that was going to you know, shrink that footprint for me and then hopefully be a cool enough product that other people would be inspired to make the same choice. And I, so I searched for months for something to purchase and found nothing. There was nothing in the market. There was nothing really. I mean, there were lots of experimental vehicles on the drawing board, some really, really cool stuff like the, you know, the Carver was being talked about, but it had, the Carver has a lot of complex systems to make it actually work and lean. But there wasn't, there wasn't just a real simple solution that was mass market adoptable at that point. And so I went to a parade in Eugene, Oregon, and saw a little three-wheeled kit vehicle called the Buggy, designed by a transportation futurist here. And it was in really seeing that vehicle, and it was just zipped right by, and it looked super cool and super fun. It was, that was a, the, sort of the light bulb moment for me and, and the light bulb, what it illuminated is the giant gap between the motorcycle and the car. And at that time in 2007, there just in the U.S., there just were not products in that gap. Now there are things like the Can-Am Spider and the Polaris Slingshot. So you start to have now there, there, there are products that are aiming at various different niches within that gap. But at the time that we started, there was nothing. And so it being a kit, I, I decided to get a kit and I, I cajoled some friends into helping to put it together. And it was really through putting the putting this kit together that I realized, oh, you know, a, a vehicle like this is sort of like a big Lego set. You have a bunch of parts, you put them together, and if we ch slightly changed the the makeup of parts and the overall design, we might be able to make something that is a mass market product. And that was the beginning of Arkimoto was starting from a kit vehicle, tinkering with that, and then ultimately 
starting over from a clean sheet of paper and saying, what is the real everyday electric vehicle? Something that, that ticks the boxes for a wide swath of drivers, but does so with a much, much lighter footprint. And I think as important is something that we can could bring the cost down to a point where ordinary mortals could afford it. Because at that time it was, you know, the choices were either get a golf cart or put a reservation down for a Tesla Roadster. And I wanted something that was going to be more like in the in the used car price range or something sort of approaching the price of a golf cart, but that had much more daily utility. Because if you get a neighborhood electric vehicle in the U.S., you're sort of limited to your neighborhood. What we really wanted was something that would be much more of a community electric vehicle, something that could go on all the roads something that could go a reasonable range and uh, carry two people comfortably and carry groceries. And, and, and so, so that really was the, the beginning of the quest. And it, it took us really eight tries, eight distinct generations of development to find what we think is the sweet spot. And that we did the first drawings of that at the end of 2014, probably right about when you started following the company. And then sort of very quickly moved through the alpha prototype stage, got our, you know, aiming towards beta, went public, built a factory. And then two years after going public and getting our factory building, which was just at that point, a big empty box, we launched production. Yeah, awesome. And talk me through, so, and we'll get into the nitty gritty of the production and all that sort of thing, because I am very curious. I've got a lot of questions, but the uniqueness of the fun utility vehicle. So I'll put up a photo of it on the podcast, but for folks who are hearing this on audio, what is the vehicle? It's a, It's got two wheels in the front, one wheel in the back. It's electric it really sort of splits the lanes between the motorcycle and the car in terms of concept. It's almost right in the middle. Uh, although, you know, much more towards the motorcycle in terms of weight and fun factor, but much more towards the car in terms of it can carry two people comfortably. It's a stable platform. It has protection from the elements. It's got front wheel drive. So, so a lot of the, uh, basically all of the work in those first seven generations of product development and into the eighth, were, it was really all about creating a new EV platform. And what distinguishes the Arkimoto from other trikes that we've seen on the market is it is front-wheel drive, actually dual-motor front-wheel drive, so independent control of the two front wheels. The battery is underneath. It's in between your feet. And, so, and, and the drivetrain's center of mass is forward of the front axle center line. And what that does is it takes all of the heavy elements, really heavy elements of the vehicle, puts them right on the bottom plane of the platform and leads to a, a really fun, really stable, very nimble ride experience. So I think what gives the product its first word, the fun factor, is that it is just a really well-ballasted three-wheeled platform. And that's what we have, that's sort of been the core of our intellectual property portfolio. What, what really took so much time was sort of figuring out what's the, what's the right way to package all the stuff in a three-wheeled vehicle platform. Because you know, if you think about a car, we have templates and have had templates of what a car is supposed to be for 100 years. But the three-wheeled space has been, there have been a lot of experimental vehicles, but, but none that have, have really truly taken hold in the U.S. market. Based sort of, I, I think, a lot on the quality of the real ride experience. Our goal was to get something that is, from a ride experience standpoint, as good or better than a car. 
Right. And talk me through the capabilities of the vehicle. So you mentioned that it's covered. It's highway capable, so it can go up to 75 miles an hour. So you can use it on the freeways as well. And then crash protection, how does that work? The Arkimoto is a motorcycle. It's a three-wheeled electric motorcycle. But unlike most motorcycles, one, it has three wheels. Two, it's got front-wheel drive. And then you've got a roof overhead. And then we have tested that roof against the 216A standard for roof crush resistance. You have two seat belts for each occupant, a three-point on both sides that functions closer to a four-point belt, partly because the vehicle can be driven with no doors on it. So we wanted to make sure that we did our best at keeping the occupants in in the frame. And then the, the other, I think, real safety advantage of the product versus a typical bike is just that you are you're sitting up at about the height of a crossover SUV, and so you have you have really good visibility of the road. You have good vis- visibility of other road users, and likewise they can more easily see you. Where we have seen a lot of kind of the micro mobility vehicles being very very small from a visual standpoint on the road, I think that height factor is actually a, a real advantage in terms of safety. I think it's interesting as well as we think about the micromobility space and you're right up at the very kind of, you're technically a little bit over the threshold of what, what Horace and I have kind of de- defined as micromobility, but I think it's interesting just in the sense of, okay, you've got a you've got a tandem device, it's electric, it's it's satisfying a lot of these points that we have made about why micromobility is interesting. Talk me through the weight requirement because one thing that I did think that was quite interesting is that you've decided to go for a vehicle that is highway capable. You didn't try and say, we're only gonna do vehicles that go up to 30 miles per hour and cut the weight down and keep it light. And, you know, cause if, obviously if you're not going above 30 miles an hour, then your batteries can be smaller. The whole vehicle can be lighter. What were the trade-offs that you had to make when you were thinking through the design? At, at a certain level, we really just wanted to make sure that it, it serves the daily driver. There are a lot of communities, particularly here in the United States, where there just isn't the road connectivity for low speed travel. So if you have a vehicle that is limited to 25 or 30 miles an hour, you get landlocked in a very small area. That has been, I think, one of the major reasons why the neighborhood electric vehicle has not been a real market mover in the United States. It's just that there are too many expressways, inter-neighborhood routes that you need to get up to 35 or 40 or 45 or 50 miles an hour to keep pace with traffic. And you just can't do it in in those classes of vehicle. And that's part of what drove us to the motorcycle class, to the three-wheel vehicle class. But at the same time, you know, we wanted to build something that was very lightweight, that was very efficient, that was efficient with materials, efficient with energy, efficient with space. And so that's really been the sort of the design tension of the program from the very beginning is one is how do we make sure that we meet the capability requirements of everyday driving? One or two comfortable adults. I'm six foot four and there are a lot of big people out there. So we wanted to make sure that big people can fit in this platform, but then make a platform that overall is not much bigger than a motorcycle so that you can park three of them in one parking space so that they're just sort of try and reverse the trend of the supersizing of vehicles that we've seen over the last decades. And so so our target, by the way, is well within the micromobility space. We wanna get down right around a thousand pounds. Product number one is 1300. We wanna be at 230 miles per gallon equivalent at least. We're at 173.7 for city driving right now. So 
as we have successive iterations of the product family, we're going to continue to strive towards ever ever increasing efficiency and decreased footprint. You know, versus today's cars, we think that the starting point where we landed is pretty darn good. Yeah, totally. Speaking of parking, you describe parking situation on your website for the Akimoto as being rockstar parking, but I didn't understand right. what that meant. What what does that mean? Rockstar parking is if you think about a rock star who shows up at a show, you know, they just get to park right out front and walk in. And typically that's what, what happens with the Akimoto is that you find parking spaces that nobody else can park in because you're driving a vehicle that fits in about a third of the space of a typical car when parallel parked. Uh, so there, we, we, the last time I was in Manhattan, for example, everywhere we went to go eat, I found parking within about a half a block of the restaurant. And that's just, uh, a, you know, unexpected for your typical Manhattan driver. Completely. Um, what, yeah, so you, you take up about a third of the space. Can you park it directly into the curb or do you have to? No, you actually, you, you park it like a motorcycle. You actually park it tail in at about a 45 degree angle. That's what makes it take up, you know, you squeeze it into the parking lane with such a small footprint. Curious from your perspective, who are the, who are the buyers for this? Like what's the market for fun utility vehicles? And what are your, like, what's the customer that you see that's coming, that you see is coming through and saying, yep, this is the sort of vehicle that I want to be able to purchase. It's a pretty wide range of people. The first product that we're building, the, the FUV is, um, it has kind of a power sport motorcycle style design language. So we find that that appeals to folks who have sort of aged out or familyed out of the motorcycle set. It's also appealing to the younger end of the market that is not wanting to adopt a full-size car, the urbanites uh, who have, for whom parking is a real premium. A, a ton of people want it for a vacation home, for to tow behind the RV as a shared use vehicle, as a delivery vehicle. And we've, we've actually got a, a delivery specific version on the drawing board of the platform that's, that's designed around last mile delivery. We think that there is a real use opportunity in first response, law enforcement, parking enforcement, campus security. And we have a product on the drawing board called the Rapid Responder for, for that part of the marketplace. But really, the, the development process over years was all about really honing in on what the requirements are for the, the wide market of drivers. What do people actually need on an everyday basis? And so if you have the, the customers of Arkimoto are ones who drive almost all the time, like almost all of us do. Our early customers are all willing to be early adopters of a new form factor. And that's a that's a different sort of psychological bent, but it really cuts across the, the demographic landscape. You mentioned the consumer versus enterprise. So you've got the delivery vehicle, you've got the fast responder. For enterprise customers, what do they see that's different about the vehicle versus, uh, say for example, other options in the marketplace? The commercial buyer is just looks at it uh, at the bottom line. It's a question of total cost of ownership. Obviously, upfront purchase price is also a factor. And so if you have something that versus a car costs less upfront, costs less to operate, and in the case of delivery or in the case of first response, gets you there faster and is easier to park for a, a delivery. For example, if I'm going to go and pick up a meal for a food delivery service, 
I need to park at the restaurant, get the meal, and then I need to go make the delivery and then park and hand it off. If all of those steps are faster and the vehicle costs less to operate and costs less to purchase, that's a pretty comp- compelling value proposition for, uh, for a fleet. I hear you. And then for the consumers, obviously, I, I like your angle where you've gone, hey, it's a fun utility vehicle. Oh, and it just so happens to be far more efficient and cheaper to operate and cheaper to buy and other things uh, versus maybe a car. Saving the planet comes standard. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> So talk me through, as you mentioned, you were 2014, you came out with the first version of the fun utility vehicle. You've gone through eight iterations since then to be able to get you guys to production today. What happened in that five years? Because we we look at the micromobility world, especially around sort of scooters, and we're seeing six month development cycles on the scooters. And they're obviously, that's kind of an exciting aspect to it because it's very fast and everything's kind of iterating very quickly versus a car, which is, you know, typically up to seven years for development. You're sort of somewhere in the middle there. What were the kind of unique challenges that you guys faced um, as you tried to bring the vehicle to production? The first challenge was just getting to that starting point five years ago. Everything that went before the seven swing and a miss vehicles that we had built. The fundamental challenge was getting a vehicle that met the capability requirements and then did so at a, at a weight and size level that was going to be competitive in the marketplace. And that was really what Generation 8 was all about, was ditching the steering wheel and that thereby changing the occupant packaging to the point where the vehicle ended up being much, much lighter weight than the vehicles that we had built before. We shed like 600 pounds between generation seven and eight. And then the, the other real challenge was capital formation. We are not in Silicon Valley where the tech funding world really live, at least in the US. And so coming out with a fundamentally new vehicle architecture in a very highly competitive space, a founder that had no prior experience really in the vehicle marketplace has been an uphill slog the entire time. What really changed the dynamic there was one, putting together the the plan for generation eight and finally having what our first institutional investor thought was a real disruptive thesis. So in, in the Clayton Christensen sense, the innovator's dilemma approach is really all about finding a product that meets a utility threshold for a market. In this case, it, it was figuring out what is the utility threshold for the daily driver and then does so at a, at a much reduced cost. Um, and I think once we hit Gen 8, that's when it really became clear that we were targeting that very idea. So the drawings of Generation 8 were enough to get the capital to build out the early prototypes. Those were enough to build out uh, the brand and the product idea and get people really excited about it, which was really critical in, in terms of launching the public offering. And then our public offering paid for the bulk of the completion of product development and the build out of the factory and, and the preparation for manufacture. It has been a, a long road of never quite getting to the promised land yet, but always making substantial forward progress towards our, our milestones. And I think if one of the Funny thing is, like I was looking back at our at our various videos that we've done over over the last several years, noticing how much of what were forward-looking promises have now become actual reality. A, a lot of our story is still in the future. The move to autonomous vehicles and scale production and profitability, which is a very important thing for a company to achieve. That turning point is something that we all very much look forward to. The step of actually getting a production certified, tested, manufacturable vehicle and the manufacturer processes entirely set up 
to build it, that has been a, a major milestone and a major step forward that's really very recent for us. You've got obviously a new vehicle type in many ways. For that, did you end up having to go kind of very custom in your parts and supply chain or were you able to be serviced by the existing OEM supply chain for the auto sector? A lot of the foundational components are just out of the automotive supply chains. And that's everything from tires and wheels and brakes and half shafts and battery cells, motors, controllers, a lot of the bits and pieces. What, What is unique is how we've sort of put it all together. And in order to build that efficiently, that that's why we we vertically integrated the metal fabrication portion of, of the vehicle production. So that we build we build our own chassis, we build our own suspension components, we build our own cages, uh, sort of the glue that holds the whole thing together. That that we actually do in our manufacturing plant. And so for the folks who are looking to buy an FUV. What do you consider to be the competition when you're looking at what these customers would otherwise buy if they weren't going to buy this vehicle? The main goal is to get the right sizing of the footprint of transportation. So we look at it as a more uh, more appropriate tool for the job of daily trips, one and two people, relatively small amount of stuff, than a full-size car. And so I would say from a use standpoint, the, the goal is getting people out of cars and into much more efficient vehicles. Our go-to-market is all based around vehicle rental. So in order to get people an experience of the vehicle, we plan to open up rental stores in destination markets that have lots of tourists and are, that are fun to tool around and, and see the sites. And so in that, if we look at it from an in-market experience angle, then our competitors would be things like Vespas or golf carts or whatever you can rent as an, I mean, even, even something like a Sea-Doo that you could take out on the water and at the beach, you know, you may decide actually, you know, today let's, let's rent an Arkimoto and tool around the island instead of renting a Sea-Doo and going out on the water. Um, so it's, we're, we're competing for, your, for activity dollars uh, in, in our in our in-market experience model. But when it comes to people who purchase the vehicle, it, the competition is much more, well, I mean, on some level, it's everyone who's making a vehicle. Um, but we see the, the, the direct competitive analogs as being sort of the small car or the souped up bike. So you have the emergence of Lime and Bird coming along with these vehicles that you can just walk along the road and be able to unlock. There is Revel in, in New York City, which is now doing this with mopeds and Scoot and Bird have just released the cruiser versions of their vehicles. So you're now getting mopeds. Do you think that this vehicle would be well suited to this idea of having- um, oh, it'd, be, it's a, it'd be fantastic for that yeah. use. And that is that is on our technology roadmap as well as it's sort of the app-based rent on demand and, and so on. Uh, whether it's opening up a small fleet of vehicles or you being able to rent your vehicle out to a neighbor if you've got one and you want to have it shared use within your own neighborhood. Higher vehicle utilization is absolutely in the aim of sustainability, right? So if the vehicle's sitting parked 95% of the time, it's not doing nearly as good a job of taking vehicles off the road as if it were being used 25 or 30 or 40% of the time. Talk me through, you mentioned autonomy. It strikes me that this is a very viable base for autonomy. I mean, it's it's lightweight, it's small, it's a cheap platform, quote unquote, and it has all these kind of interesting benefits of being lightweight and able to operate on the road. Have you been approached by any autonomy companies? Can you reveal anything about, you know, whether or not anybody's coming to you and saying we want to operate in this space? I, well, I can say that we definitely have been approached by autonomy companies and we have also approached autonomy companies about platform integration. So our, our focus up until now 
has been squarely on getting product and market. But autonomy has been actually a part of the story since before Arkimoto was even started. When I was in the game development world, one of my business partners and I would argue incessantly about the future of transportation. His contention was that everyone just needed to get a GeoMetro and we'd be fine. My argument was that we would have self-driven, very small footprint vehicles that you could summon at will that would take you on your daily trips. And so that was de- that, that was an influence in the design of the platform since you know before Google snapped up all of the DARPA challenge winners and started their autonomous vehicle program that really, I think, broke open that whole space. Arkimoto, in a certain sense, was the user-driven product, was sort of a, an attempt to answer the lighter footprint before true autonomy gets here. But I think that the goal of merging our platform with best-in-class autonomous vehicle tech, I mean, that's, that's been the, the plan from, uh, from the very beginning. Exciting. Well, I look forward to some announcements in that space when you've got something to go public with. And the, the final question that I'm, I had for you is around, and you'd mentioned this as well, which is capital markets for new maker manufacturing. So if we look at the history of automakers in the in, in the US, there really haven't been many. I mean, there's sort of a long, a long pile of them over the years of ones that have started and, and failed. And, and it's been very challenging. Um, Tesla's really the one new automaker in the space in the last 50 years or so. There is a lot of venture capital out there. And I'm curious from your perspective, did you take any VC in the in the beginning? You ended up going to the public markets. Was there appetite there when you talked to the VC guys? So so I, I, I funded the beginning of the company out of the sale of my first startup and rapidly figured out that making a big pile of money disappear quickly. One of the very good ways of doing that is by starting a vehicle company. So I basically ran out of cash right around fall of 2019, uh, excuse me, 2009, and promptly went down to Sand Hill Road in the Bay Area and just got laughed out of every meeting that I went into for a few reasons. One is that our idea was still way early. We had not found the product market fit or anything even closely resembling it. Two, they had just, that whole crowd had just put enormous bets on Tesla, Fisker, Coda, Aptera, you know, you name it. And it, at that point, it looked like they were all going to go to zero. And then three, the question was always like, what possible business do you have in this business? So that led us down the friends and family route. And then I had to start making new friends and family stopped returning phone calls. And then finally, when we had the right mix of a product, which was in end of 2014, when we drew up generation number eight, that's when institutional investment came in for the very first time in the form of Bill Hambrecht's third venture fund. And Bill is a, he is a disciplined disruption investor and is a disciple of Clayton Christensen in that regard. And he thought that this had the potential for being an actual vehicle disruptor. And so he was the one who really encouraged us to go public early. He thought that the public markets would be more receptive to uh, clean vehicle story and, and all the rest. And I think, I think that, that's, that insight is probably generally true it has taken us longer to get to production than we originally anticipated. And so I think in order to really see the benefits of being in the public market, we've got to be a revenue generating company. And quarter three of this year will be the first time that we actually recognize anything resembling real revenue. The capital that you've raised today, so you've raised what, 25 million? In total, we've raised about 44. We've raised 34 in the public market, we raised 10 to go from inception to IPO over 10 years. 
One of the things that I think about is that you see a lot of these low speed electric vehicles being built in China, especially light vehicles. And I've been talking to some companies who have been going to China and they're like, oh yeah, you can get literally get vehicles now contract manufactured. You can kind of give them the specs and they'll work out how to make it for you. And you don't have to, you pay for a little bit for the tooling, but the cost of produ- getting to production or something resembling production is obviously a lot lower. But then there's obviously a lot of things that aren't necessarily included there. They're oftentimes those vehicles are sub 50 kilometers an hour or sub 30 miles an hour. So they, you know, come under different regulations, et cetera. Do you think there could have been a more capital efficient way to get you guys to where you're at at the moment? Or is is that sort of, this is just, this is table stakes if you want to get into vehicle manufacturing? At least amongst the folks I talk to in this, in the venture side of this world, there has been some level of, of real surprise when I've told people it only took us 42 million bucks to get to production. It's it's like an order of magnitude less in some cases than people are expecting. And you can definitely go to somebody and say, hey, make this, but you still have to get through regulatory compliance. You still have to test the heck out of it, You know, build a real quality team and manufacturing verification operation. So we have seen organizations that cut corners in this space and try and bring real cheap products to market fast. And those have, at least in, in my experience, have inevitably failed in the US market. So our long-term goal is to, is to build all over the world uh, where there is market demand for the products that we have. And so uh, we, we don't think it makes a lot of sense to build in Eugene, Oregon and ship to China for the Chinese market. I think it makes a lot more sense to build in China for the Chinese market. But I think in terms of building a real high quality product designed for the vehicle consumer of today, having done it in our own space, in our own backyard, uh, just saved us a lot of time and energy on the development side. As I've looked at companies going back to Coda and then more recently like Faraday Future who've tried to do joint development between multiple countries and time zones and languages, I think it's a, a much better idea to take a, a fully finished product and say, okay, now we want to replicate the manufacture of this as, you're, as we're seeing Tesla do with the Model 3. I mean, they just basically said, okay, we're going to figure out exactly how to manufacture it, make sure we get all the kinks out of the production process, and then we're going to copy-paste that production process into other markets. To me, that that approach makes a lot more sense than trying to co-develop it in multiple regions of the world at the same time and think that we're going to end up with a good product at the end of that effort. Absolutely. Well, look, we're up against time, but I just want to say this has been a fascinating interview. Given the fact of kind of where you're at and that you're so kind of deeply involved in actually manufacturing these things, I think you bring such a unique perspective to this space. I, I, I just commend you guys for, for getting to that. And I'm looking forward to watching the story from you guys now that you're in production and you're starting to sell these vehicles because I think, you know, you're right at the top end of what we consider to be micromobility. And I think there's going to be a lot of appetite. Uh, we consider there to be uh, kind of a lot of latent appetite there uh, for a vehicle in this space so i'm really excited to watch your story cool if people want to find out more about you mark how would they do that are you on twitter do you write online or anything like that i tweet occasionally Uh, my twitter handle is nardo polo n-a-r-d-o-p-o-l-o and then of course arkimoto is on twitter and on the web at arcimoto.com marvelous excellent well thanks so much yeah really appreciate it oliver talk to you soon